All right. So welcome listeners to another pandemic panorama panda bear episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. A mania, 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 mania. It certainly is feeling manic these days. <laughs> Yes, it is. But we're here and we're still ticking. You can hear us every Wednesday on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio at 11 a.m. That's right. We're still doing it. Five years running. Holy crap. I know. <laughs> getting gray hairs at this point. I swear. What? <laughs> so it's Women's History Month. How yeah. exciting, right? And last yep. month we talked to uh, history makers as well. And we're going to continue that on with this series because like we said before, it's really important to give people their flowers while they're here. Yeah. And there's some really important work going on when it comes to cannabis law, but also, I mean, in general, criminal justice reform. And mm-hmm. so we have some really cool guests, an old friend and a new one, and we'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, let's start with Sheba. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, hey, I am Sheba Williams. I am a Richmonder, born and raised. I've been here um, all my life, except for 10 years, I lived in Tidewater. I returned to school with three kids under the age of five. Don't know who decided that was a great idea, but we survived. <laughs> um, returned back home in 2012 and have been here ever since. I am the founder and executive director of No Left Turns. I am the co-founder of the Institute of Forgiveness. I am a barber stylist by trade. Styles by Shiba is my business. And I am all around um, fire starter in the city. <laughs> yeah, we like that part. Where were you in Tidewater? I lived in Norfolk um, for eight of the nine years. And I lived in Portsmouth for 11 months. And it was crazy enough for me to decide to get up and go back home where I belong. <laughs> Because that was a lot. <laughs> she, y'all noticed how she said it. So we, we could tell she's a, a native Richmond because she didn't say Norfolk. Because if you're from Tidewater, <laughs> you say Norfolk. Where you at? Norfolk. <laughs> Norfolk. Everybody knows what you mean. <laughs> yes. And they know exactly what it is. My mom was a school teacher in Portsmouth now. God bless you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. And what about our other guests? This is a, a repeat of ours and a, and a friend. Hello, uh, Nigas Tabebi. I um, wear a few different hats in cannabis, but I guess in rough sequential order, I joined the board of Virginia Normal, got hired to be vice president of public policy at Columbia Care, uh, became president of the New York Medical Cannabis Industry Association. And then after we passed part of the job of legalizing cannabis, I was appointed to be um, on the Public Health Advisory Council for the Cannabis Regulator here in Virginia, where I was elected by the other appointees to serve as vice chair for the first year. So a few different hats in cannabis, but I actually started out um, living in Hampton Roads in the Tidewater area too on campaign, working on campaigns and had my own political consulting firm helping to elect um, great progressive candidates all across the Commonwealth and now get to work on making cannabis policy um, all over the country, which is really, really exciting. Yes. And we actually ran across you, I think, were, I know I was first introduced to you. You were in a program with Jesse, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yes, actually, I um, helped co-found New Leaders Council Virginia. And actually, that's how I met Shiva, um, because another mutual, Amy Wentz, uh, had suggested Shiva participate. And I remember from the moment I read Shiva's application, I couldn't wait to meet her. And I also was so excited she was going to be a part of NLC Virginia. And like, boy, am I ever grateful for that, because not just for NLC Virginia and all that is great, but she was an amazing human being. And I'm really, really grateful we get to work together on all things cannabis, which is... I love Only a that. fraction of what Shiba does. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. y'all both have extensive resumes and biographies and feel free to Google these fine ladies too and delve right yeah. into it. But let's talk a little bit more about like how you got to where you are because your work is also very personal to you both. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I started out, I... So I, for, I'm the policy nerd and I frequently call myself the person who makes cannabis boring. I once was at an event where some people who do insurance and cannabis were like, actually, we may have you beat. And I was like, you're right. So no, I, I'm like the second most boring way to be working on cannabis, right? But I got here because my first foray into it was in grad school, just took a class 
and it ended up being researching Prop 19 and why it had failed. And our client for the class was actually the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the time and briefing them on the fact that public support was there, that the facts about cannabis did not map with federal policy and these states were going to start legalizing before they did. And they, they we left them not with a series of takeaways or like recommendations, but a series of open questions for them to have to answer. And it's very interesting to me 10 years later to be on the, this side of the conversation where I sometimes have had to be on panels or testifying in committee meetings alongside people I briefed a decade ago who are still charting out the same prohibitionist line. The other reason though, the main reason I really started galvanizing on this most recent round in cannabis was because my mom and I have the same kind of anxiety related insomnia and I had a security clearance for most of my 20s that had you know, always supported cannabis legalization, but was never a big consumer myself. Also had asthma, so wasn't big on smoking and inhaling things. And it wasn't like it was easy. It, you know, It's not easy to get access to edibles or other things if you're not really looking for it. And I wasn't because I couldn't. Then after I'd finished up my time in the federal service and all of that, I get home and my mom's like, do you want to go to my dispensary with me? She lived in California. And I was like, sure, let's go. Let's try this out, mom. And it was one of the most surreal experiences I've had in my life because the waiting room was much older and much wider than anybody really ever thinks it is. And then when I got home, my mom gave me my first Indica edible and I had the best sleep of my life. I'd been trying to manage my chronic anxiety and insomnia with like z and melatonin and all types of stuff, like not quite ready to go all the way into something like Ambien because that was really scary to me. And I had one edible and woke up, I had no idea. I could just wake up feeling so well rested. It had been so long since I'd had sleep that good. And then immediately it was like, how are people still in jail for this? And that immediate juxtaposition of like the extreme relief and the extreme injustice was why, I, you know, I came back home from that Thanksgiving break and contacted JM at Virginia Normal and started talking to them about joining the board and getting involved because I also knew that we were headed towards a democratic trifecta in 2019 and we'd have two years to get the job of legalization done and not just done, but done well. Because at that point it was end of 2018 and laws like Illinois, you know, Illinois about six months later would become the first state to legalize cannabis through legislation not through a ballot referendum and really kick, you know, kickstarting this whole equity movement within cannabis into a whole nother gear. Because up until that point, and I think sometimes it's easy to forget where we once were in this movement because of where we are today. But for the vast majority of states that legalized, they had to do things like forbidding folks with past cannabis convictions or with any type of, especially felony convictions, from even being able to enter the market because that's what you needed to clear 50% support or you know whatever the threshold was for ballot referenda. And it was very difficult to, to you can't, it's very difficult to pass comprehensive equitableization in, in a ballot referendum format. And, you know, this was six, like I said, six months before Illinois was about to do, do the thing. And we've had a lot to learn from, and it's been, I can't believe how much has happened <laughs> saying it out loud. I can't believe how much has happened since. But for me, like this was really about the combination of having family members who have been impacted by, you know, the criminal justice system. Um, not necessarily cannabis related, but having to go to court myself and having family members who have been um, struggling with the after effects of what it happens when you have even just an arrest and, and not even a conviction on your record, much less than a conviction. And so that combination of both the health and the wellness and the relief and the justice was just like, I couldn't not start getting involved. Let's see. So a couple things. Back in 2012 or like 2011, my grandfather was diagnosed with stomach and lung cancer. I was living in, in Tidewater at the time and he had no appetite. My mom was his primary caregiver. She had, she was working on the road and she called him like, you know, periodically check in with him like every morning. And she called him six o'clock in the morning and the uh, smoke alarm was blaring in the background. And she said, something is wrong and I'm on my way home. So she knew something. She just had the intuition to know something was going on. And she came home and she became his primary caregiver. Being somebody's primary caregiver who is in, in stage of cancer is very daunting work. So I would come up every Sunday to give her some relief, give her some time away. And I noticed that my grandfather had lost like all of this weight. So I used to go roll up for him. Now he would, he would probably take two or three puffs and put the lit joint in his pocket. But that was the only thing that gave him an appetite. That was the only thing that gave him any relief. So I would do this every week. He ultimately passed in April of 2012, but he felt so much better and you could tell his spirit was different. So that, that was, that was one part. <laughs> 
No Left Turns was started in 2016 out of anger. I was wrongfully convicted in 2004 of a crime. My husband was incarcerated at the age of 15 and he was sentenced to 74 years. He ended up getting in prison and connecting with somebody who was like the law um, clerk or person in there. And he ended up being acquitted of some charges and was released in 2002 when I met him. He ended up going back to prison after a year and a half for eight and a half more years for a violation. So in 2012, he was released. Yesterday made 10 years, y'all. March 13, 2012, he came home and has been out for 10 years. But between the two of us, when we moved back home, we put in over a thousand job applications between the two of us and did not get one single call back. He had trades. He had all of these different trades that he had acquired while he was in Department of Corrections. I, of course, had my barber's license. I had my degree in business management from Norfolk State. And we, just, we didn't get a call back. And I was angry. And I said, something needs, needs to be done for people who have done their time and are fighting with things like housing and employment. So I started the organization begrudgingly. And I always said, you know, people say we look at each individual person's case and we'll make a determination on whether or not they are worthy of working here or living here or going to school here. And that is just not the case. And I knew that expungement was the only way out. If people if people say that it's not important to look at your past, then you should not have access to look at it once a person has completed their time. So I did not know how. I did not know how long it would take, but we were fighting for expungement. In 2020, in the midst of the racial uprising, um, you know, with George Floyd and the pandemic of COVID, our governor at the time, Governor Northam, said he wanted to release close to 2,000 people from incarceration. The problem is, if you don't have a home plan, if you don't have family support, if you don't have employment or income, if you don't have anywhere to go, we're being denied for not having um, that home plan. And they were they were considered a high risk if they did not have somewhere stable. So we took to the community, all of our funding raised in 2020, with the exception of like the end of the year was raised from small do dollar donations through the community. And we were putting people in hotels. We were doing eviction relief. We were doing rent support to make sure that people stayed in place because an eviction and a conviction together means that it's near impossible to find housing in Virginia. So this big, huge cannabis bill comes about, and it has $25 million for an expungement bill baked inside of the cannabis bill, for lack of better words. So I read the whole bill, and it was a huge thing, and um, I was really involved in the process of record sealing, which it turned out to be record sealing at the end of somebody's initiative in the Senate, who I was allowed to rename nameless. Um, but I became a VA normal board member. And of course, I, I abbreviated my biography, but I am also a Virginia normal board member. I am a Maggie Walk Community Land Trust board member. I am a Cannabis Equity Reinvestment Board board member. I've done Just Leadership USA, National Juvenile Justice Network, New Leaders Council, Virginia Progressive Leadership, because it is all about who you know, and how you obtain that knowledge and how you become connected to the work. And there were so many different sides of what we would do with cannabis legalization that I had to get involved. So I kept hearing this term in 2021 that we want to center people who have been harmed by prohibition. We want to center people. We want to center people. And people were the last things that were centered. People who are still incarcerated on cannabis offenses still remain in prison. They still remain in prison because this state was selfish enough to say, oops, we ran out of time and they can wait. So that is how my work came to be. That's how I got involved. That's where the fight is, yeah. That's, and, and that's more than enough. Um, and I think it's really important that we probably take a trip down step by step as to how Virginia got to where we are right now, because I don't think that if you're someone who's not ingrained um, in this journey, um, you don't really understand how these tips and turns and twists and legislations and rewriting and why, why the rush was so important for certain people in Virginia. Um, what that means. So let's talk about um, marijuana law from where we started when when these things these conversations were first starting, right? And walk our listeners through a path to where we are now, because a lot of those things, even as that were publicly talked about during the beginning of the stages, are even changed now, right? Let's start and kind of talk about how we got here and then where we are right now. What is the plain speak of where marijuana legalization, e either or both of you, give us a walk down 
through that step-to-step process where we started when these conversations were first being talked about. And if the politics are in there, let's add that too. Ooh, starting from the beginning, um, there were adult work groups. There were studies done by JLARC. There were um, conversations with people to determine what is the best path forward. There were also, and, and this is Nicholas's lane, there were also studies from other states because we know that the equity, the equity programs have never been fully realized in other states because they say equity, but they don't provide the capital for equity. They don't start from how do we make sure that people who we really are intending to put in these positions have the resources they need to get things done. So um, conversations were had around how we get to that point, how we make sure that equity is really centered. And there were, were also talks about what we do with the revenue. Who will be able to be at the table from day one? Who will be able to gain access to um, real estate and different ventures, which we call ancillary um, jobs like HVAC and um, you know electrician electrician positions and different things like that? Because not everybody wants to own a dispensary. People want to make the money, but it really started with a bunch of people getting together on a monthly basis to hash this out. And and there are a lot of people who jump into the conversation and say, um, I have this opinion about it and I think this should happen, but they would not show up to a public public meeting to give those conversations to lawmakers who have been taught by us a lot of times. So um there were there were months and months and months of conversations and research and you know just getting to the background of how things work. How does the the industry, the hemp industry play into this? What do we do with the laws that have already been on the books since 1977? And we all know that the failed war on drugs was something that really impacted um, mostly minority communities. But if we look at it in 2022, there are just as many uh, Caucasian Americans in prisons from the same things as there are others. We just know that there was a disparate impact on the community by percentage wise, but it impacts everybody. And when we talk about people going to jails and prisons, we're not just talking about that person who gets put in handcuffs. We're talking about the children who are left behind. We're talking about the communities that suffer. We're talking about the economic impact of an employee being taken away from the workforce and being removed kind of sort of permanently from the workforce. Um, So these conversations were going on in the background because everybody thinks that Um, The lawmakers just made the decision to legalize on July 1, 2021, and that is not the case. It took a ton of work to get to that point. And everybody um, talks about how huge the bills were, 500 pages here and another 500 pages there and 196 pages this year. But there's a lot to be unwrapped from where we started with the war on drugs. It did not start with the 1994 crime bill. It started with the Nixon and Reagan eras where they started taking federal highway funding away if you didn't charge enough people with DUI and DWI. It started with eras where we have to keep DUI and DWI um, convictions on the books for 11 years or we don't get certain funding. So this was a very holistic uh, approach to how we ravaged community. It's going to take a very long and drawn out process to unravel all of the harm that has really been done and to make sure that we get it right. Because a lot of people talk about what they want and they talk about equity, but they didn't show up for the conversations in the beginning to make sure that uh, what they wanted was actually in the bills. So um, I'll kick it to niggas, but I have a whole lot to say and I know we're limited on time. (laughs) Um, I'll try to pick up... um, just say, so I served on the adult use work groups in 2020. I helped ensure that Sheba came to speak about the long lasting impacts of a conviction and why it was important. I helped organize a joint session of two of the subgroups specifically to talk about equity and licensing, where we brought in folks from the Minority Cannabis Business Association in Illinois, which was just beginning to implement their program at that time. Um, and just beginning to see some of the setbacks that can happen, you know, in implementation. And I think that that's the core thing to me is like, we did years of work went into getting Virginia to this moment and and years of work that even started before Shiva and I were part of this conversation, right? And that every bit of progress towards normalizing the substance we've made over the course of, I would say, maybe the last generation, really, since you start to see medical cannabis laws really take root. And for anybody who really wants to nerd out on like the history of this plant, including going back to like the prehistory of how the ancient archaeological information we found about this plant and how early it was being used and how many early human civilization were using cannabis as medicine 
I highly recommend the book Smoke Signals to just take you from like the dawn, literally the dawn of humanity <laughs> to recent conversations about where this plant is and the history of criminalization because Shiva is exactly right. This substance was criminalized in wave after wave after wave over the course of the 20th century and largely as a tool to um, further the goals of a racist um, white supremacist society and not actually to secure the safety and, and health and wellness of its citizens. Um, but to the Virginia point, years of advocacy was happening well before Sheba and I arrived to specifically speak to the cannabis parts of each of our you know, life passions and life work, including a medical program that was passed by a Republican-controlled General Assembly and signed by a Democratic governor and was originally designed to be a um, pilot program to supply state legal CBD for children with epilepsy. And over that, since that bill was first passed, we've been able to expand this medical program year after year, each year making incremental changes to make this more like a normal medical program, right, from that point. I think that part of what Shiba said about how it, it took decades and it took wave after wave of um, different political parties and political powers, and I say that in a nonpartisan way, like everybody was involved in this push to create the cannabis prohibition impacts that we see today and that we all are trying to unravel with the prospect of cannabis legalization. And to that end, I think that in Virginia, we had a huge focus on equity and inclusion. And I think that carried through even for this year, we talk about how do we include rural distressed farmers and figuring out the right way to include hemp farmers so that you're including the rural distressed farmers, which by the way, also includes a, a, a decent amount of black hemp farmers when we're talking about Virginia and helping folks get into the adult use cannabis space as well as how to make sure that medical is included so that the 40,000 registered patients in Virginia continue to have access and see more affordable and increased access from the expansion. And that's one piece that I think, you know, I work for one of the medical cannabis companies here. I didn't even know it existed when I signed on to join the board of Virginia Normal. I had reached out because um, to my now boss, because I was trying to talk to all of the medical provide medical cannabis operators in Virginia on behalf of Virginia Normal to figure out where they stood on adult use and what we could be doing to work together. Didn't expect to make this turn, but I'm not mad about it because now this is my full-time job. <laughs> and I get to do it not just in Virginia, but in a whole host of places. And I get to work with a whole host of groups to focus on everything from equitable access for patients to equitable reinvestment in our communities to equitable opportunities within this industry. And I think Virginia was on a path and could still manage to be one of the first states to pass bipartisan legalization that actually creates room for small businesses and justice-involved folks and people with past cannabis convictions to be able to succeed in this space. Because I also think that Virginia is one of the few places in the country you know, agriculture is one of the number one sectors of our economy. Like we have, you know, even with all of the different economic stumbles we've had to face, we have one of the most stable economies in the country statewide. We've got a lot of work to do to make it an equitable economy and one that works for everyone, but we've made a lot of progress and we can keep making that. And I think that Virginia could be poised to be a major mover in the national cannabis space and to not just bring room for lots of folks, but to be a place for a whole lot of black and brown folks and rural farmers to enter new market and to achieve respect like uh, new levels of like independence and sustainability and, and the pride and ownership that comes from being able to have your own business and employ people and you know provide jobs and insurance and benefits to people within your community not just for yourself and I think that's the part that gets exciting when you start thinking about how we could turn this on that means we got to talk about the ways it didn't get turned on this year and I think one of the things here is that there are so many stakeholders at the table it's really difficult to reach different types of compromise I'm also again the policy person so when we talk about the stumbling blocks we faced in Virginia this year like I will always point to process and it's not as a it's because we should all understand how government works. And I think one of the things we have to remember is our government is being run by human beings who have 24 hours a day and six days a week, and they have emotions and brains that are still only human brains, which means sometimes they're too tired to take in one more iota of information or make one more decision at the end of this day. And so I would first and foremost say that I hope and pray to God that at some point we change the way that the Virginia legislature is run because uh quote unquote, part-time legislature that only meets for 45 days for a long session is an ineffective way to govern, not just for the legislators, but also for the citizens that they are supposed to be serving. But that's a different, that's a different podcast episode. Uh <laughs> it sure is, but it's a good one. <laughs> it is. But Come on back. Now, 
for now, I would just say that like when you have a leadership change on the scale that we, um, where you have a new governor's administration, you have, a, and a very new, right? It's not like we have somebody who is like moving from an existing and has pre-existing relationships from the legislature. But when you have somebody coming in from outside who is building and, and learning a lot of these things as they go, it's a little bit different, even when they have good um, informed staff around them. And then when you have leadership changes within any of the parties in either chamber and the legislature, it just gets a whole lot harder. And then you add on to it the fact that like cannabis isn't a policy area any of these legislators are experts in, right? Like a lot of these folks have worked on abortion policy for years. They worked on education policy for years. They're parents. And so they understand exactly what's happening in public schools because they're trying to navigate it themselves too, in addition to trying to write policy about it. Not very many of these folks will at least openly acknowledge that they even consume cannabis, much less have a deep understanding of the policy situations it takes and then you add on to it that when you talk about cannabis policy, it's not just cannabis, it's criminal justice policy, it's economic development policy, it's agriculture policy, it's health policy, right? All being layered on top of one substance, it gets those these bills, like Chiba mentioned earlier, they get larger and more complex because you're literally trying to create an entire industry in a legal setting, an industry that currently exists, but has no laws about how to do it legally. It only has laws about how to be arrested for it. And making that transition to build something, it takes time to get all of the details right. And I think we could have gotten really, really close this year, but now we won't. And we have another year, which means I think we need to take a year to get it done because the other part of this is like, none of this stuff changes. People are still going to be arrested. They're not going to be arrested for simple possession now. And it'll be a fine for folks who have certain amounts of possession, but cannabis paraphernalia is still illegal. So the moment you walk out of that head shop where your bong was labeled for tobacco uses only and you put it in your car, you're now at risk of a class six felony because we didn't finish the job of legalization. And there's a lot of different conversations about what's the best way to move forward. And Shiba and I talk about this a lot. I was talking, I know I've been on a bit of a tear right now. But I will say that I think it's important when we look at policy to not use our judge as short hashtags, but to look at the actual substance of the policy. So right now we're stuck with, I think, six to nine felonies that have stayed on the books because we didn't pass a version of this bill. And people are still upset over one new misdemeanor getting added. And I'm not going to say on this call because I haven't done the analysis which one is better, but I think instead of looking at short phrases or, or hashtags to assess the impact of policy, we should be looking at what's actually being changed here and will that change lead to re reduced harm for our communities and for the people we're trying to serve by this change. And is it better to have six felonies on the book or one misdemeanor? And again, these numbers are rough approximations. We're still doing the count of exactly how many felonies are remaining. Um, but there are things, for example, people think that they can personally cultivate. If your plants are incorrectly labeled, class six felony. Not to mention the fact that it's there's no legal way to acquire your plant. And so if you have a police department and you're in a community with a police department that wants to come after you, they can find a way by, by digging into where and how you got these, right? And there are still felonies being attached to things like possession with intent to distribute and other categories of crimes that I think I just want to make sure folks really know and understand like what's still left on the books. Because when we end up in these legal gray areas where it's legal to possess, but there's no legal way to acquire it except as a patient in the medical program, like that's where like, how can we fault people for ending up in more um, systems with incarceration because we haven't, we don't have a clear and consistent policy in place in the in the Commonwealth to keep people safe. Sorry, I could clearly go on for a long time on this stuff. So let me stop. No, that was no, a big, appreciate that you, was thank a very, you. yeah, that was a very big uh, how much, because people don't how get much that. Do need? Um, so, going. you know, my work is, my, my work is injustice work and it is, it is very, indicative that we know that we have tried to incarcerate our way out of social problems. We have tried to, like, like we have behavioral health dockets and we have drug court dockets, but we do not have a docket for poverty. We do not have a means to make sure that people have the wraparound services they need when they just do not make enough to survive or thrive. So, you know, we have people who were making $7.25 an hour and our Commonwealth was saying that that should be sufficient. The cost of living was not making an adjustment for what we said was sufficient for people to be able to earn. So when they turned to things that were considered criminal activity, they were always penalized. Absolutely. There was no room to not make a mistake. So if we're going to the, the root of where we are, there are people who sit in legislation and say, well, those people broke the law. They should not be given preferential treatment. Mm. But 
that people grow, people change, people make mistakes. And we know that there are there are legislative laws that happen and they were wrong. You know, saying slavery used to be a legal thing. Yes. It used to be illegal to walk away from your slave master's uh, property and you could be or, you know, sold to another person. And we we know that people make mistakes. So as legislation happened in the past couple of years to make sure that we didn't rely so much on carceral systems and the cannabis conversation came up, a lot of people said, yeah, we want to make billions of dollars off of this plant. We want to make sure that small businesses have access. But I don't know about this social equity thing. I don't know about people who have been harmed in the past. But what people need to realize as a whole is we probably want the same things I don't want to see my children criminalized. And I'm talking about under under 21, under 18. I do not want to see my children criminalized. The same way that we locked people up for the crack cocaine and, and gave people passes on the powder cocaine or had a disparate impact on those things, give my children treatment when you find them using cannabis. Or if they're on a college campus where they think that it's completely legal because, hey, I can I can buy tobacco at this age or I used to be able to do it at this age. You have to know that everybody doesn't follow the law like like others and young people especially need to be given more leeway. So don't keep criminalizing my kids so that you can benefit off of making money off of it. Don't keep criminalizing my community because let's think about where we see policing the most. The, the communities that are the poorest are over police over-incarcerated, over-sentenced, and overcharged all the time. There's no two ways about it. So if we're really being intentional about making sure that people who have been harmed in the past have access to generational wealth, which has been the tagline, it, it has to be more than a tagline. We can't keep throwing these people into the pits of a PR nightmare only to continue to criminalize those communities and say that, figure it out, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is what we always heard. Mm-hmm. We got to think about our recreation centers being disinvested from. We got to think about our public schools being disinvested from, from certain, in certain communities. This was all a direct result of the war on drugs. We got to talk about how gentrification happened a decade before we start seeing white flight into certain communities because they were looking at the medium and main income to see whose houses we could go take by means of uh reverse mortgage loans or different things like that. So there are very intentional things going on in these legislative policies that certain people benefit from and certain people always become the victims of. Mm -hmm. We are talking about building something that has been intentionally made to disinvest from certain groups of people Mm -hmm. for centuries. Mm-hmm. Not for decades, not since the 60s and 70s. We're talking about since slavery started happening on the banks of Virginia down in Jamestown. We're talking about making sure that we change the name of what slavery is because slavery by another name is mass incarceration. Absolutely. What do we do when we lock these people up? We take away their ability to work in places. We take away their ability to get access to professional licensing. We, we talk about not being able to rent. We're talking about not being able to be foster parents. You can donate organs. But if you have a criminal uh, history, you might not be able to benefit from getting somebody else's organs. So we're saying that we're, we have a second class citizen and we're talking about you don't have the right to determine who is on your child's school board, a city council, or who is your governor, who is your president, or who represents you and, and fights for you. And we know that there are some legislators who only take uh, meetings from their constituents. So if you can't vote, then sometimes you are disregarded. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are tied into it. And I know we're talking about cannabis, but if people don't look into the ins and outs and the intersectionality of how these things relate and who gets left not having a seat at the table, mm-hmm. then you you have to realize that you are a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to have things the way that they want to have. Nobody wants to compromise. And the people who are willing to have the conversations of compromise and being bad mouth or being made out to be the, the bad guys. But the fact of the matter is, I am not okay with 536 people remaining in incarceration because they have cannabis offenses, because we can't get our wording correct on certain things. I am not okay with the 11 people who have cannabis only offenses spending another day in prison. And what we did when we killed the bill that was the vehicle to do legalization, we said they could wait 365 more days. There are a lot of people who are talking about, oh, the, the medical communities who have the licenses already should not be able to come in and take over and should not be able to be the incubator program for people to learn because they'll make this money. Well, guess what? 
for 365 more days or more until we make this process happen, they are the only licensed people who can sell and make money off of cannabis. We are still sitting it out on the sidelines waiting for something to happen because some people say it. I don't want to deal with this piece of it. I don't want to deal with that piece of it. But I say it. My people who are still incarcerated or who matters the most, and I could care less if you make a dime or a dollar today, if you think that it's okay that they still sit in prison while we it out over who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. No, I don't want our people to continue to be criminalized. But what we did when we said we are we're fighting against no new crimes. What we did was say we don't want new crimes, but we'll keep the old crimes that we've had since prohibition. So think about what that means. That means that we continue on the same path that led to us getting here in this conversation that says we're trying to correct the harms of the past by continuing the harms of the past. And not talking about them. Exactly. And I'm happy to chime in. Um, As like I said, I work for Columbia Care, one of the medical operators licensed here in Virginia. And I I see this argument happening all over the country for how to use your existing medical cannabis operators, because historically, nobody was thinking about social equity when they legalized medical cannabis. Like just that wasn't most of the structure is designed around uh, like heavy capital requirements and super robust applications and nothing about medical programs to date has been very equitable. A few states like Maryland, DC, Delaware have done different types of expansion rounds using like their existing, you know, small business definitions or other things. And that's yielded more diverse markets in each of those jurisdictions, but it's not. And like I said earlier, the medical program in Virginia was legalized, I think, first in 2015 with affirmative defense licensing didn't happen until 2018 and was done by was designed as a pilot program and while certainly at Columbia here we've been advocating for more licenses in the medical program and more equitable expansion of the medical program no one's been able to bite on that while they're still trying to figure out what else to do with adult use and so then one of the arguments that came up this year was oligopolies, 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 that this was about setting up a, a win for a small market share, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that got overlooked and everybody who was raising that argument was that one, the bill was going to include hemp farmers in a transitional market. And I think it's important to call this a transitional market because what we're talking about is a transition from 100% of cannabis activity happening in unregulated environments or even illegal environments, which put people at risk of incarceration or police enforcement, and trying to move that economic activity to be in 100% regulated and legal environments. And that doesn't happen in a day. You don't snap your fingers and all of a sudden everybody's buying legal cannabis. First of all, it's a plant and it takes time to grow it. It takes time to grow enough cannabis for Virginia's probably over $2 billion market. Um, and that's the illegal market in Virginia is $2 billion of economic activity. The four licensed and operating medical providers in Virginia cannot supply $2 billion worth of cannabis right now. They won't, we won't be able to supply that a year from now. But like Shiva said, with this bill passing, now we are still the four operators are still the only way to legally buy cannabis. And not only that, we're not going to get an expansion of the medical program right now. And so that's it. Like, so the folks who were really pleased to see this bill die because they were against oligopolies just made sure that we have four more, another year of having an, a small licensed market in Virginia. And we have a very accessible uh, medical market because you don't have the, there's no conditions list and you can use telehealth with your cannabis card. And I do strongly recommend people get their medical cannabis card because it affords you more pr- protections, including employer protections, if you're not in a safety sensitive position. And it's one of the best things you can do for yourself right now to protect your rights is to make sure that you sign up and become a medical cannabis patient if you are consuming. I also think it's important because, um, Frankly, most people who are consuming cannabis, even so-called recreational cannabis, all the numbers we see coming back from mature markets like Colorado and California show that anywhere from 65 to 75% of people purchasing adult use cannabis are coming in for a health or wellness reason. And the top three reasons people buy cannabis in any market, medical or otherwise, are insomnia, anxiety, and pain. And that is the primary reason. Those are three of the most common reasons people are seeking out cannabis is for relief. And so when we talk about including the medical operators, like they're a critical piece in a transition. One, because they can absorb the entire market share, you still have plenty of room for new market entrants to come in. And at Columbia Care, like I've been building partnerships precisely to identify 
and support new entrepreneurs getting into this space. We work with Paul McLean at the Virginia Minority Cannabis Coalition to have the first boot camp that came through last fall that created a cohort of folks who are working on their business plans so that they could be ready for an application. Even we don't know, didn't know then what the application was or even if we'd have a legal market for them to apply for. So I say all of this to say that like you can use your medical market to help a, a transition into a legal space. You can use it to require them to support small business operators. You can understand that incumbent operators both on the hemp and medical side need each other and need new social equity licenses or any other new market entrant in order to effectively see a successful transition to adult use. And I will point out, Sheba sits on the Cannabis Equity and Reinvestment Board, and they are supposed to be responsible for giving out grants to reinvest in communities impacted by the war on drugs. But that board has no funding if there are no legal cannabis sales. So in addition to ensuring that for another year, we have only four legal cannabis companies in Virginia, this bill not passing also means that for another year, we're not collecting cannabis tax revenue that can be sent back into the communities most impacted by prohibition. And that's where I think we all need to have a sense of urgency in order to make sure we do finish this job next year and that we get it done and that we find a way to not just solve this, but to make it clear that issues like justice and economic opportunity and reinvesting in communities that we have disinvested from and purposefully neglected is a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue. That these are common causes that we can align and that we can get done while we have divided chambers and a divided government. And that it's even more important, actually, that we do get it done when we have different folks at the table, as long as we can stay true to actually creating these impacts for folks and stay true to creating actual opportunity for folks to enter this space, because there is a lot of room in cannabis. And anybody who claims that the existing setup is what it's going to be forever, all I say in response to that is how many of us have an AOL.com email address on this, on this podcast right now? Hmm. And think about what first mover advantage actually means. <laughs> I, I got to jump in and I have to add this in because I need people to, to know what was what was lost this year. The 30% revenue that was set aside for the Cannabis Equity Reinvestment Board to divvy up would impact K-12 education, the recovery community, HBCUs, reentry organizations. It would impact so many different things that people don't think about. We, we, have, we have taken a position to attack our public education system top to bottom, and teachers are teachers who, who deserve all of their flowers are bearing the brunt of new administration, tearing down everything that they have worked so hard to build up with so little resources. That revenue would have generated capital funding for schools and making sure that people have what they need. But we said, no, we can wait. We can wait. And where do you think the money comes from? Where do you think the money comes from when we wait another year? So the small businesses and the social equity can reach out all the time and say, hey, how do I, how do I get involved? How do I get this started? I have this idea. I have this plan. They still have to wait. Um, I asked the person the other day and they said to me, I said, if we started legalization on September 1, 2022, if we started today, where would you get your plant from? And how do you service the people who have a, a desire for this? I'm going to tell you something really, really personal. My mom had cancer last year. She was diagnosed with lung cancer um, the, the, the week after my grandmother passed in May. And she went through chemo and radiation. And my mom hated chemo and radiation. But what she did, what she did use that gave her relief was cannabis. She got her cannabis, um, you know, registration card. Uh, Dr. Don Adams helped her through the process. I'm talking about hand in hand. They walked her through the process and she got her cannabis card in 30 days. Now, the cannabis wasn't the problem. It was the chemo and radiation and the immunotherapy that killed her on election day in 2021. So people need to think about how diverse this plant is and how it really benefits people. Some people are in it for the money. Some people are in it for medical benefits. Some people are in it to get rid of their anxiety. It is what it is. We're going we're gonna to be all the way honest. We're going to say that some people <laughs> use this in recreational use. And they, they um, most I've seen a person who is high out of their minds do is sit at a green light, you know, and eat up everything in the house. So I want people to be clear about what was lost this year. We lost the ability to fund the things in our communities that matter the most. And, it, and I'm not pointing blame. I'm not saying it's anybody's fault, but I really want people to be intentional about what happened going forward. If you have suggestions on how these bills should be written, have these conversations in the off season because everybody want to have a conversation in January when the bills are already submitted. They've been submitted in November and December. 
everybody wants to have a conversation with legislators who don't know what is in the bill because we get a lot of them on the floor to say I, I haven't read this bill I don't know if you care about it if you care about how revenue is spent or generated or who has the, a pass at it or who has the is, is the best situated have these conversations now and and for the advocacy community myself included it is time to get the bickering aside and start to really work in a collaborative manner to make sure that people are centered. Whatever your stake is in this, if you do not have the desire to center people in this conversation, and, and I'm talking about average everyday people that we are spending this thing to say that we're doing this for, for their best interest. Mm -hmm. If you're not really doing this for their best interest, then you need to sit and, and you know, think about another way, but you will not break the backs of people who have been harmed by prohibition to say that you're doing this for their benefit if you really are not. And that's what's real. Yeah. Thank you for that. Both of you. In our last section here, because I mean, we could talk for another hour or so, I am sure being that it is the month of women's history. Uh, let's talk a little bit about one, how all of this, the criminalization, the failed war on drugs, and also, um, you know, marijuana law has affected women specifically. Um, and also I have noticed throughout all of this, that it is women who are really leading the way black women, especially um, are leading the way here uh, towards legislation. Let's talk about that. Who are some of your, um, some of your heroes and inspirations as well? Sheba. Is it too corny if I say Sheba? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Listen, niggas niggas jm have vicky vicky uh cullen quinn they have been my team and they have uh saved a lot of people from me and the the side of me that is is not the professional online key yeah <laughs> i'm just say that <laughs> just say that but being being honest like there are a ton of women in the fight who who fight wholeheartedly. Sisters in Prison Reform has been such an inspiration to me this year. Kelly from Just Forward, like behind the scenes, there's Michelle Willie. But at the end of the day, I fight this fight because my family was impacted. My dad did 19 and a half years and my mom only did six months, but she she dealt with this fight her whole life. She ended up passing before we realized the record stealing bill that was really for her benefit. And at 63 years old, she was still being denied housing for a, a conviction in 1989. I was 10 years old. My grandmother was one who held the family together. My sisters, one of my daughters are the ones who will lead in the future because my baby girl is in school for criminal justice now and my oldest girl isn't doing her master's program for social work. They will continue this fight and it is because women bear the brunt of the problems. Our prison system in Virginia has increased by 800% in the past decade for women who are incarcerated. And while we only have two women's correctional centers, Fluvanna and um, Virginia uh, Correctional Center for Women, we are going to prison at higher rates. We are contracting uh, more charges, more convictions than any other group. It's moving at such a fast pace that people don't think about when women are released, and their children have been put into a, a foster care system or a social services system, they can't just say, let me go to this transitional house and get my life together because women hold the family together. They have to fight to get their kids back. They have to find a place for all of them to live. They have the least amount of resources. They are paid at disparate rates because men and women make different things, which makes no sense. We should have a pay scale that is equal. And if we're going to be, if we're going to be disparate in how we distribute, we need to distribute it based on how many people in the household and who's taking care of the household. Now who wears the biggest size pants? Women make these things go round. They make this world go round. And in my, my very most inspirational person, I know Fanny Lou Hamer, like she fought for voting rights by day and got home and took care of family by night. So, you know, um, this is what we do. This is what we will continue to do. And even if we are not given the grace, even if we are not given the accolades, we will continue to fight because we don't care about who gets the credit as long as it's done. And we look at it from a holistic perspective to make sure that everybody's okay. We don't have the luxury of saying, I'm only looking out for this group and nobody else. It is all about making sure that the community is centered in all of the conversations all the time, no matter what we're fighting for. <laughs> I love it. I guess I'm not even going to try to top that. <laughs> she said, no, I'm good. She said, nope. I'm good. She, she recovered it all. <laughs> well, 
And, and quite a mouthful it was. Um, everything that you said is absolutely true. All of the experiences that you've shared are absolutely dead on with what our community is going through. And I don't think that people understand truly just how many fingers the legalization of, of cannabis really has on everything as we've seen it. Um, our community, our, uh, criminal justice, you know, um, economic opportunity and, and more, more than anything, um, incarceration. And so I think that it's so important that um, we continue to have these very, very candid conversations about those things. Um, because like I said, the average person thinks it's cool now to just grow you a plant in the backyard and everything's Gucci. And that's not the case. And folks won't know unless they get, you know, unless those, those, those conversations are had. I had a couple of people ask the question of, well, if I can purchase now, how do I get it to the house? Or how do I get the plant there? Or what's going to happen to, and I'm like, that's a part of the conversation. That's that the way you know how. Yep. All I can say is be safe, lock it up. And, you know, you, you got a half legal process. So right. you have to protect, like in, in the boxing world, there's a term, protect yourself at all costs. Mm-hmm. Lock it up, put it in the trunk because open container laws yep. mean that if you, there, there is no such thing as sealing cannabis back up. If you get it in a bag, <laughs> you know what we mean. If you get it in a bag, there's no way to seal it back up. There's no way to lock it back up. So get a container that is smell proof and put it in the trunk. If you must ride with it, protect yourself. Make sure that young people cannot get access to it. Protect yourself. Because we don't know where we're going with this and we don't know how long it's going to take to get it right. Um, we, we are not about rushing it, but there is a sense of urgency when we're talking about leaving people sitting in these prisons because prison is violent in itself. Mm-hmm. We, we, it, it makes no sense to me that we have 11 people who have cannabis only offenses. And, and I want people to understand this. If you are on probation, you still sign a contract that says that I will not indulge. So even if it's legal to simply possess, you may sign a contract that says that I can't use this substance and it may lead to further incarceration. It is at the discretion of that jurisdiction and that Commonwealth attorney or that sheriff's office to decide if they will prosecute you for showing up with this, even if you have. A medical license. You have to know what you're dealing with if you're going to be a player in this game. And I use that word with all intention because I want people to know that right now we are in a cat and mouse game with the with the government of the state of Virginia. And we're in this very, very, very gray area where we have to fight for what we want in the future. We have to vote for people who are in line with our values. We have to make sure that the people who are sitting in position don't keep playing these games with our lives, with their political beefs. Because this year was ugly. Mm-hmm. This year was, was downright disrespectful when we're talking about somebody said this is Virginia for all people, but we clearly saw there were people who were disregarded in the legislative process. So I want people to know what their legislators are doing when they get up in the general assembly and talk about, well, we want this economy and we want workforce development. It can't just be workforce development for the selected few that you represent in your small district. It has to be for everybody. When you take on the responsibility of sitting in that seat, you represent the state of Virginia. And you can't just make decisions with your heart and mind based on what you think in your small world. You have to think about the unintended consequences of every piece of legislation that you put forth and how it affects everybody in this state. And to add to what Sheba said for cannabis issues, like Virginia Normal has the comprehensive list of every cannabis bill or every bill that touched cannabis policy, including justice bills that were, you know, things like um, attempts to change pretextual searches, which is the ability for a cop to say, you need to search your car, I smell marijuana, which is not coming back this year because of the good work that folks were able to manage in the legislature, um, among a few other pretextual stop things too. But I strongly encourage folks going to the Virginia Normal website, and that's normal as in the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, so N-O-R-M-L. Um, and you can follow along there for action alerts and ways to keep up with your legislators um, in between session. Um, and I know that we'll be working on more content. And now that session is wrapped up, um, mostly, at least we got to come back to the budget. But now that session is mostly wrapped up, 
Um, we'll be doing more content on um, making sure folks understand exactly what where Know Your Rights Law stands um, right now and how best to consume responsibly and safely, um, as well as you know how to understand like if you're eligible for a medical card and how to become a medical patient in order to secure some of those protections. So as Shiva said, for some folks, even a medical card is not enough protection, um, whether you're on parole or probation. Or um, similarly, if you have a, what I call the safety sensitive position. So if you have to operate a forklift, like you got to have a larger conversation with your workplace. And I will just say one bit on impairment. Impairment is impairment. doesn't matter what the substance was. If you are not safe to drive, you should not be driving. But conversely or um, relatedly, when it comes to legislation, we need legislation that acknowledges that cannabis impairment is no different from being sleep deprived or texting or having taken over-the-counter sleep or cold medicine, that we cannot expect every type of impairment to be assessed the same way we assess alcohol impairment, which even that has flaws. Um, And then we have to keep looking and waiting for more accurate assessments to better understand how to enforce impairment, but that the current tools and resources we have for all of those other types of impairment, including from opioids or other prescription meds, needs to be applicable when it comes to cannabis impairment. And as consumers, you still have to be a responsible consumer, know and understand, um, and always keep a DD with you if you're going out or travel with a DD. I shouldn't say keep a DD. You shouldn't do that. That might be human trafficking. <laughs> yeah, probably. Herb choice is key there. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, let's not do that. Let's not. Let's not. Yeah, try. let's not do that. Yeah, let's, let's not, not make more crimes while trying to avoid other crimes. No, no. we are law-abiding citizens on this call. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time. Most of the time. Most of the time. Right. <laughs> okay, then do no harm. Do no harm. Do no harm. <laughs> do no harm. Do no harm. I like it. Words to live, ladies. By. I we appreciate you sharing this time with us today we appreciate all the knowledge that you dropped um for our listeners to be able to stay in with that um we heard a little piece of it um from the guest a second ago we want both of you um, ladies to tell people how they can connect with you how they can follow you how they can read more up on legislation how they can keep up with what's going on take a second and do that for everybody right now please um, I am Shiva Williams, No Left Turns, Inc. on everything. No Left is spelling backwards. Turns is, turns lives around. I don't know. We stopped using that terminology, but the name was already uh, solidified. So it is No Left Turns, Inc. on everything. Um, obviously, I'm your Richmond history maker. So if you don't know me, you should know me. The website is nolefttimes.org. Don't pay the website any attention because it's being upgraded because somebody kind of dropped the ball on that. But <laughs> right. soon you'll have all the information you need. Um, VANormal.org, normal is N-O-R-M-L, gives you all of the cannabis-related um, legislation. Everything that was set back, left in committee, everything that failed, and the few things that did pass. Um, niggas and I are board members. We are always going to be following behind that and look for us on the road this summer to educate and make sure that you know what has happened in this legislation. Hopefully you'll get involved in the future. That's right. Um, I'll just add my personal since um, Shiba got most of the organization that's niggest um, on Instagram. I deleted my Twitter, but then reluctantly came back. So on Twitter, I'm now niggest and then the number one. And niggest is spelled N-G-I-S-T-E. That's really all you need to find me literally everywhere on the internet. You are the one and only. Yes. Yes. Very easy to find very difficult to scan love it well ladies thank you again for all the knowledge you drop as there are changes we'll probably be calling you to to do this again um it's vital and important to all the vested stakeholders but also uh the community to understand how they're being affected by these things so again we thank you so much we appreciate you during this women's history month We uh, give honor and credence to the work that you've done um, and give you your flowers right now. So we appreciate you so much for everything that you're doing, cannabis and uncannabis related. And we just appreciate you. Thank you so much. Please come back on again with us. Yep. Always a mic and a seat for you. Come on down. Yes. Yes. So as always, listeners, you know what time it is. Flint still has dirty water and so does New Jersey. And I'm pretty sure Petersburg does too. So y'all might need to check on them. Just saying, uh, RPS was fully funded last year. And I don't know, I didn't read this budget and I don't know. I mean, we're going to work on it and um, <laughs> we got to get the right together. We're just going to put it like that. I don't know. And um, I would 
we all know it together. Richmond is most certainly still racist, but we're working on it one day at a time. Thank y'all for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You all are so wonderful. Come on, pass the Dutch, baby. Shake, shake, shake your stuff. Pop that chick with that fat. Don't stop, get it to your clothes.